Good evening. So this evening I'd like to continue exploring our retreat theme, which is healing the heart, refining the mind, and finding freedom. And just a reminder that freedom in this context means freeing ourselves from painful, afflictive, self-referential mind states, and instead establishing ourselves in beneficial, skillful, and altruistic mind states on deeper and deeper levels. And based on what I experienced with you in the relational practice this afternoon, that process is already well underway. Because as you were sitting together and contemplating mind states, I could feel the strength of your mindfulness and the stability of your samadhi, steadiness of mind, even while you were exploring something as subtle as mental qualities or mind states that are underlying the surface content of thoughts and emotions. So I think we're in a good place now to begin to explore some of the more challenging mental states that can come up on retreat, and specifically a set of five afflictive mental qualities that get in the way of clear seeing, in other words, that hinder insight. Now, most of you have done quite a few retreats before, so you're pretty likely to be familiar with this list. If that happens to be true for you, then I just encourage you to try to listen with an open heart and mind to cultivate that quality known as beginner's mind and to listen as if you'd never heard any of this before. A few others of you are new to retreat practice, so this list of the five hindrances might technically be new to you, but as you learn what they are, I think you'll probably recognize at least one or two, maybe all five. They may actually have been coming up over the last few days, but you just didn't yet have the terminology to name them as such. So just to name the list now for context, and then I'll go into a little bit more detail soon. The five hindrances are desire for sense pleasures, or sensual desire. The second one is ill will. The third is sloth and torpor. The fourth is restlessness and worry. And the fifth is skeptical doubt. Before I go into a little bit more detail about each of them, just to acknowledge that by their nature, these five hindrances are experienced as unpleasant. So when they do come up in practice, we usually have a negative reaction to them. And although we might understand that in theory, every experience we have is just another experience that we can bring mindfulness to, even after many years of practice, there's still often the tendency to equate pleasant experiences with good meditation and unpleasant experiences with bad meditation. So for most people, there's something in us that feels confronted when we do find ourselves in unpleasant mental terrain. And when things get difficult, it's very easy to think we've done something wrong. Then we put a lot of effort in trying to work out where we went wrong and how we can get back to that pleasant experience that we had yesterday or on the last retreat or a decade ago, not even realizing that some of the most transformative insights can come 
from learning how to relate skillfully to these afflictive mental states. So yesterday afternoon we were looking at the second establishment of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of Vedana or feeling tone. And I mentioned how those three basic feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral act as sparks that can ignite a whole chain reaction when there's no mindfulness and can tend to pull the mind into three basic afflictive energies that the Buddha named as greed, hatred and delusion. And he saw these three core harmful motivations, greed, hatred and delusion, as what keep us perpetuating our own suffering. Now, greed, hatred, and delusion are fairly heavy terms. They might even sound a bit archaic. And we might think, they don't really apply to us. But each of them refers to a whole spectrum of intensity, from the most extreme all the way to the most subtle. And so we want to be on the lookout for even the most refined, relatively speaking, refined energy that's coming up because it still has the power to pull us off course. So if that language of greed, hatred and delusion is somewhat off-putting, you might prefer the language that the English Dharma teacher, Martin Aylward, uses. So he describes the energy and the strategies of these three afflictive states as the three C's of compulsion for greed, contraction for hatred, and confusion for delusion. So we can see that compulsion is a movement towards something motivated by greed. Contraction is a movement away from something motivated by hatred. And confusion can show up sometimes as non-movement, just being stuck, or other times agitated, spinning around without going anywhere. So these three basic motivations or movements are what the Buddha recognized as keeping us caught in dukkha, suffering. And these three give rise to the five hindrances. The Buddha specifically asked us to be on the lookout for these in the Satipatthana Sutta because the five hindrances so particularly negatively impact the mind and make it difficult to see clearly. So again, just a brief definition of what they are. The first one, sensual desire, is rooted in that core motivation of greed. And it's any kind of wanting of sense pleasures, of comfort. So clinging to pleasant sights, to pleasant sounds, to pleasant smells, to pleasant tastes to pleasant physical sensations and also clinging to pleasant mental experiences. The second one, ill will or aversion, is rooted in the core negative energy of hatred and it includes any energy of not wanting, of pushing away, of rejecting, of resisting. So it includes the energies of anger and of fear. So those the first two, there's a very direct relationship between greed and hatred in those first two. And then the next three 
uh, all different manifestations of that core energy of delusion. So the third one, sloth and torpor. These are old-fashioned words for low energy. So you could say lethargy of the body, dullness of the mind. The fourth one, restlessness and worry, is too much energy. The body and the mind are agitated, they won't stay still, and they keep looping over and over in the same mental patterns, often grounded in anxiety. And the fifth one, skeptical doubt, is any kind of undermining, confusion, useless questioning that leaves us paralyzed and unable to do anything at all. So that's a very brief overview of what these five hindrances are. And I've been asking you if you recognized various things. Tonight I'm going to ask you, has anybody not ever experienced any of them? (laughs) It's a pretty high bar. So I'll take by inference that all of you can recognize at least one of these five at some point in your life, maybe on this very retreat. Does that feel accurate? Yes? So I'd like to normalize just how common they are because of that tendency to take them personally. Nevertheless, we do want to see them because they can lead to harm for we ourselves, but also for others too. And in the suttas, the discourses, the Buddha is reported to have said that the five hindrances, quote, overwhelm awareness and weaken discernment. Then he goes on to say that when a practitioner is without strength and weak in discernment, it's impossible for them to understand what is for their own benefit, to understand what is for the benefit of others, and to understand what is the benefit for both. So this practice of bringing awareness to the hindrances, it has an ethical aspect to it. It's grounded in that same commitment to non-harming that we took together in the training precepts on opening night. And so we want to support not harming ourselves, not harming others, by learning how to recognize these hindrances and how to help them release. So how do we actually do that? In the text, the Satipatthana Sutta, the same passage is repeated for each of the five. And in essence, it tells us to, one, know if a hindrance is present, two, know what causes it to come up, three, know how to release it, and four, know how to stop it from coming up again in the future. That's pretty comprehensive and not so easy. Fortunately, like every other aspect of the Buddha's teachings, this is a progressive training. And so the first step is being able to recognize a hindrance for what it is. And each of us needs to learn how they show up for us individually, because although there are common energies, each of them will have their own unique signature patterns for us, how they manifest in our bodies, hearts, and minds. And so the more clearly we can recognize them, the more quickly we can recognize them, the better, because we want to try and catch them before they get too much of a hold on us. 
And one of the challenges with the hindrances, as I said, is because they're unpleasant, we often have a pretty unhelpful attitude towards them. And even the term hindrance, you know, it pretty clearly implies that there's something wrong. And we can take an interpretation that they're wrong, they're bad, they shouldn't be happening. And so you may recognize that that attitude to the hindrances is itself a hindrance. It's rooted in ill will or aversion. And what I've noticed for myself is how common, although we hear this nice tidy list, one, two, three, four, five, in my own experience, they don't just nicely show up one at a time. They tend to hunt in packs. So if one gets a foot in the door, the rest pile in for the party. And so just to recognize how common that is and to try to release any aversion to the hindrances. Uh, One of the English Dharma teachers, Rob Barbea, he referred to the hindrances as, quote, manifestations of our humanity. So you might notice if that energetically feels different. And sometimes on retreat when I've shared this, people will come into meetings with me and say, I've just been manifesting so much humanity today. (laughs) And it's good to be able to laugh because, again, we're not getting caught in aversion. We're just normalizing, universalizing. This is what the mind does at times. Different hindrances will arise. And we try to see them as impersonal phenomena coming up due to conditions and eventually passing due to conditions. They're not me, they're not mine, they're not who I am. So you might remember that training slogan I shared with you the other day. If it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And definitely with the hindrances, we can see how we're relating to them, and if we can transform them from thinking of them as obstacles to actually thinking of them as vehicles that deepen our practice. So the first one, coming back to desire for sense pleasure, how it's rooted in greed. And it refers to any kind of chasing after pleasant sights and sounds, smells and tastes, tactile sensations, mental pleasure. Now, this can bring short-term happiness, but because of the truth that everything changes, in the long run, it's a setup for disappointment. And this hindrance can also often get us in trouble ethically, because when we're blinded by greed for something, we tend to stop seeing other people as fellow human beings, and we might relate to them as objects that are getting in our way or as objects that exist only to make us happy. Now in the context of a retreat, the hindrance of sense desire can sometimes show up as an obsession with comfort. And I've seen it in myself and other meditators on retreat. How often after a day or two of settling in, we work out all kinds of strategies and techniques for keeping ourselves as comfortable as possible. And once we've set up those strategies, we can get surprisingly reactive if they get threatened in any way. I wonder if anybody's noticed that. 
what happens when someone sits in my place in the dining room or somebody walks in my favorite walking track or takes my cushion from my place. And just to say, on one level, it's normal that we want to be comfortable. This is not a path of masochism. And given the choice, though, most of us would probably quite happily stay in our comfort zones forever, if we could. But even if that was possible, what's the downside? The more we stay in our comfort zones, the more they tend to contract and get smaller and smaller. And one of the challenges as mindfulness becomes more and more mainstream is that it sometimes is conflated with just making ourselves more comfortable. It's presented as a technique for releasing stress and enhancing well-being, and that's it. And in fact, recently I was... uh, researching something about mindfulness online and I got taken to a page that was promoting mindful bath salts. And these mindful bath salts, quote, restore calm and serenity amidst modern life through a blend of Epsom and Himalayan mineral salts, frankincense and bergamot and CBD oil. (laughs) Now... (laughs) Helping ourselves to be less stressed, it's, it's a good thing to do. But, and I have to say, I haven't tried that particular product, but generally speaking, products and substances alone are probably not going to give us a sustained and lasting well-being. And if they're not related to with wisdom, then it's easy for them to turn into a form of self-indulgence that's rationalized as self-care. And we won't necessarily find the deeper freedom that all of this practice of pointing us to. So that's one reason why on the the other night, on New Year's Eve, I invited us to write down our aspirations for the year ahead and for this retreat. And here they are here, so that we could get some clarity about our deeper intentions for the practice. And those intentions can have the power to draw us beyond the limits of our imagination and into uncharted territory. And to get there, part of that process is moving beyond the hindrances. So learning how to recognize them, in the classical discourses, the Buddha uses the metaphor of a bowl of water. Because water, still clear water, is often used as a synonym for the mind in meditation. And you probably experienced that at times, moments of profound stillness and calm and clarity. And in the India of the Buddha's time, bowls of water were used as mirrors. Not everybody had access to reflective glass the way we have in mirrors today. So people conventionally just had a bowl of water that they would use to look at their reflection. And so the Buddha used this analogy, the bowl of water, to describe how each of the hindrances affects the mind. So the first one, the sense desire, he said it's like a bowl of water that's had all kinds of dyes stirred into it. So colors like red and blue and yellow and green, and those pretty colors enchant us, but they stop us from seeing clearly. 
And in English, we have the saying, seeing through rose-tinted glasses, which in a similar way is pointing to how we see only what we want to, and we don't see reality as it actually is. And again, this hindrance of sense desire covers the whole spectrum, from the slightest trace of preference for something, all the way through to the most intense and addictive craving. And just as a reminder, when we were talking about pleasant feeling tone, was it yesterday? Again, we want to take care that sometimes people misunderstand this teaching on not getting caught in desire for sense pleasure, to think that the Buddha meant we should never enjoy anything, or that we should somehow try to avoid pleasant experiences if they do come up. This is a misunderstanding. What we're asked to do here is to notice our relationship to pleasant sense experiences, to see if we're clinging to them in some way, because that clinging is suffering. Sometimes, too, people wonder, well, what's so bad about just getting my desires met if and when I can? Again, yes, sense pleasure can be a source of happiness. But on retreat, we see clearly just how short-term this happiness is. Because of the truth that everything changes, before long, that pleasantness fades. And we're off searching for the next hit, and the next, and the next, and the next. And if we keep putting all of our energy and attention out there, trying to arrange everything out there to get our satisfaction, then we're just reinforcing that dependence on unstable conditions to make us happy, which again is a setup for disappointment. On the other hand, if we can learn how to ride the waves of desire without automatically indulging them, it's possible to find an inner peace that has some steadiness to it, no matter what the outside conditions might be. Now, I could easily give a whole talk just on sense desire, but I don't want to make this too long. So, just in terms of the antidotes to sense desire, the first antidote or strategy, you can probably guess, because it's pretty much the first strategy for everything. Any guesses? Mindfulness. Very good, yes. Mindfulness. Notice how that energy of sense desire feels in the body, in the heart, in the mind. I was noticing that when I was walking for breakfast the other day, and we had this very delicious chai. And I said, oh, I wonder if there'll be chai. And as I had that thought, I was aware my body just started leaning forward a little bit, and I was walking just a little more quickly than I had been doing before that memory. It's a very simple example. But we can feel that energetic pull towards what we want. And we're literally off balance at that point. So just to be able to recognize, ah, sense design. Right in that moment of recognition is a moment of freedom. Because as I said this afternoon, when we use this technique of mental noting, the part of the mind that is making the label or the note that's recognizing sense desire is not in the sense desire for that nanosecond. So the more we can perforate the cloud of the hindrance by these namings or notings and recognizing, 
the quicker the hindrance can break up and disperse. So mindfulness is the first strategy. The second is renunciation, which in English doesn't have a good connotation. So we can think of it instead of relinquishment or non-addiction. And all of us, just by being on retreat, to some extent we're practicing relinquishment. We're accepting the conditions just as they are. Unfortunately, the conditions are very pleasant, so that's not too difficult. But generally speaking, when we're on retreat, we try to just accept what we're offered and not try to get our individual preferences met, which pretty much goes against the basics of consumerism. In the world out there, we're constantly stimulated by a whole barrage of choices. But there's more and more research these days that shows that more choice doesn't actually lead to greater happiness. It leads to the opposite. And this feels true in my own experience, that when I've spent time meditating in monasteries or at times on retreat in places like Thailand where living conditions are very simple, even basic, it often feels easier to drop into states of profound stillness and contentment easier than when we're in situations where all of our sense desires are met there's something about that radical simplicity maybe when the mind realizes it doesn't have a choice this is what you've got it just lets go and goes quiet and paradoxically the stillness, the contentment, the peace that we can experience then are far more pleasant than the short-term happiness of getting comfortable or having our sense pleasures met. So in terms of the next hindrance of aversion, when mindfulness is weak, we often get to experience the reciprocal relationship between sense desire and ill will. So if we don't recognize sense desire for what it is, and if we can't meet that sense desire, we often get hooked by ill will or aversion. And because ill will feels so painful, we unconsciously chase after something pleasant to get rid of the unpleasantness. And then we cycle back and forward between sense pleasure, aversion, unpleasantness, pleasantness, and the whole thing keeps perpetuating so the Pali word that's usually translated as ill will is via pada. And according to Gil Fronstel, this literally means the desire to strike out at something. So it's motivated by hostility. And it manifests as wanting to hurt, to attack, to push away, to reject something. It also includes subtle forms of aversion such as just mental resistance all the way through to murderous rage. And it also includes all forms of fear, from minor anxiety all the way through to extreme terror. So this hindrance covers a pretty broad range of unpleasant emotions and mind states. Dislike, aversion, irritation, frustration, anger, rage, anxiety, fear, panic. I've got about three more pages, but I'll stop there because you get the general gist. There's a lot 
that is encompassed in this hindrance of aversion. And in the classical analogy, the bowl of water, it's likened to a bowl of water that's been heated on a fire and is boiling up and bubbling over. Now obviously when water is hot like that, we can't see clearly. And in English we talk about seething with anger. And seething also means boiling. It's a very unpleasant state. So from that metaphor we get a sense of just how painful aversion is. Not only painful, but potentially dangerous too, to others and to ourselves. And sometimes on retreat this one can show up as reactivity, even to the retreat container. So perhaps as irritation about having to follow the schedule, or maybe there's fear of not following the schedule. Sometimes there can be resentment about having to do our mindfulness tasks, or irritation at times with our fellow meditators. There are pretty much a myriad ways we can get caught in aversion. I'm not going to go into all of them because sometimes even just hearing about aversion can trigger a low-grade aversion. So just to name one common, or a couple of common ones that come up on retreat, partly because they're very common in ordinary life too, and that is the phenomenon of judging mind. So we judge ourselves, we judge our practice, we judge each other, we judge the teachers, we judge anything that moves. And it can be quite shocking sometimes to see in the stillness and the quiet of retreat just how much energy is absorbed by the judging mind. And then we can get caught in judging the judging. And so the trick here again is to try not to take it personally. And if possible, to bring a sense of humor to what is almost a universal tendency. So some of you may know a technique that Joseph Goldstein used for working with a judging mind. When it was very intense, he decided he would just start counting the judging thoughts from the moment that he woke up throughout the day. And you might try doing this yourself if this is something that's an issue for you. So as a hypothetical example, you might walk into the dining room for breakfast and why isn't that person wearing their mask? Well, judging thought number one. Oh, I just spilled tea on the counter. I can't believe how clumsy I am. Okay, and judge num- judgment number two. Look at all that dirty cutlery on the serving trolley. It's supposed to be in the bucket. Can't people read the sign? Yep, judging number three. And so it goes through the day and... Maybe before much longer, we're at judgment number 53 or 553. But at some point, we recognize the absurdity of it all, and we just have to laugh. So bringing humor to these manifestations of our humanity. And this is particularly challenging, though, with aversion, because it's unpleasant, and it's so easy to have aversion to the aversion. But the more we struggle with it, the more that resistance makes it hang around longer. So we might need to bring in a more direct antidote. Given that aversion is ill will, the direct antidote is good will, or metta. So metta, I think as most of you know, is the first of the four Brahma-Vihara qualities, qualities of heart that I briefly mentioned the other night in my talk on wisdom and compassion. 
And one of the classical translations of this word metta is good will. So clearly it's a very direct antidote to the hindrance of ill will. And we'll be doing some formal metta practice from tomorrow using traditional phrases such as may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I know peace. So you might experiment with those or if you have your own way already of cultivating metta then you can bring it in at any time when you need that antidote to ill will. So these first two hindrances of sense, desire and ill will have a direct relationship to greed and hatred. And then as I said, the next three are all different manifestations of delusion, of disconnection and distraction. So the third one is traditionally known as sloth and torpor. And these are old-fashioned English words for sleepiness, sluggishness in the body, and dullness or stiffness in the mind. And the Australian Pali scholar Christopher Ash, who some of you might know, he translates sloth and torpor as sluggishness and inertia. And it captures this whole spectrum of intensity from the total unconsciousness of sleep all the way to just a slight feeling of drowsiness or spaciness. The traditional metaphor in terms of the bowl of water is a bowl of water that is covered over with slimy moss and water plants or algae. So I can see from some of your faces that maybe you recognize that. It's pretty clear from that metaphor that the the mind is stale, stagnant. Nothing moves. It's choked with weeds. And when I first heard this metaphor, I thought it sounded quite benign compared to the boiling water of ill will. And it's true that sometimes sloth and torpor, it is a kind of slightly pleasant, sinking feeling. (laughs) And it can be just a little bit... uh, we can be seduced by it compared to the agitation of the other hindrances. So we want to be on the lookout for that. And if you notice that you're often falling into this kind of sinking mind, you might remember your deeper aspiration. And just ask yourself, is this really how I want to spend this precious retreat time? So in addition to simple sleepiness or dullness, this one can also show up as a kind of apathy or a habitual tendency to retreat in the face of difficulties. So it might be we hear the wake-up bell in the morning, it's, oh, I think I'll just pull up the covers and go back to bed for a while. And we might notice that energy of withdrawal whenever something unpleasant comes up in the practice. It's that desire to check out to numb out, to disconnect from anything challenging. And sometimes, again, we can rationalize this as a form of self-care or try to tell ourselves it's self-compassion. Yeah, I worked hard today. Won't hurt to take a little nap right now. Sometimes that might be true, but check it out. What happens if you do take a nap? Is there more clarity afterwards or less? And is taking a nap becoming a default strategy whenever something is uncomfortable? So you might 
consider other options to raise the energy, like going for a walk or doing some kind of exercise. And then specifically in terms of meditation, when there's sleepiness in the meditation hall, opening the eyes is the first and simplest strategy. If the sloth and torpor hasn't got too much of a hold, sometimes just looking at a bright light for a few moments can revive the mind. If that doesn't work, then standing. And I've been really happy to see how many of you are using that posture of standing to raise the energy. There's another strategy that one of my first teachers suggested that's a little bit unusual, but I tried it a few times early on in my practice when sloth and torpor was more of an issue, and it's particularly useful, I don't know if you had that experience of just kind of in that phase where you keep rocking and bobbing and sinking, and you don't quite have enough energy to wake up and just sitting there, nodding, nodding, nodding. Anybody know that? And usually what happens when we realize we're down, well, we, we try and make sure nobody's seen us now. A few minutes later, we're down again. So this teacher said, next time you're down, don't just come back up, stay there. And just notice how does it feel to be in that bobbed down, slumped position. Notice how it feels in the mind and then just mindfully straighten up. I don't know why it works, but it does seem to. So if that's an issue, you might try it. Let me know how does it go. Okay, so speaking of energy, hope it's hanging in there. There's not too much more to go. Just a couple more hindrances, and I will keep them somewhat brief. So sloth and torpor is an imbalance of energy in the form of not enough energy. And then the next one, which again tends to have a reciprocal relationship, is an imbalance of energy in terms of too much energy. And that's the energy, the hindrance of restlessness and worry. So we often swing between feeling sluggish and then feeling all revved up. And then that agitation of restlessness and worry is tiring, so we sink back down into sloth and torpor again. And again, as with all the other hindrances, restlessness and worry causes a whole spectrum of intensity. So from in the body, it can be intense jumpiness. And in the mind, intense agitation. It has both a bodily component and a mental component. And sometimes the body just wants to move every few minutes. And at times we suddenly feel like we can't stand even one more second of sitting still. And there can be an intense urge to run screaming from the room. And the mind gets caught up in intense agitation, anxiety, rumination and so forth. So the traditional image for this is a bowl of water that is ruffled by the wind so that the water is trembled, eddying and rippled. So again, the surface is choppy, you can't see clearly. And on retreat, it sometimes shows up as that obsessive thinking, proliferation, looping over and over the same thoughts, endlessly trying to solve some problem that just cannot be solved by thinking alone. With any thought pattern that gets stuck like that, when we do find ourselves going over and over and over, that's often a sign that there's some underlying emotion 
that hasn't been recognized. So one strategy for this hindrance is to bring mindfulness below the head, more into the heart and the body, and to see if we can recognize if there is some kind of emotion underneath that might need more attention, and then to try to meet that with self-compassion. So finally we get to the last hindrance, which is skeptical doubt. And this doubt can show up in many different forms. It can show up as doubt about the teachings. It can show up as doubt about the teachers. It can show up as doubt about our own capacity. And it sometimes can be felt as a sort of a hollow or shaky or ungrounded feeling in the body. But for most people, this is a particularly mental hindrance. It shows up more strongly in the mind, sometimes as endless questioning and second-guessing and uncertainty and undermining. So the traditional metaphor for skeptical doubt is a bowl of water that is, quote, agitated, stirred up, muddied, and put in a dark place. And I think it's interesting that the bowl of water is filled with mud and literally and metaphorically it's in a dark place and it gives a sense of the doubly destructive aspect of doubt because the mind is clouded we can't even recognize the presence of the mud so of all of the five this one is probably the hardest to recognize and it's usually referred to as skeptical doubt rather than just doubt because in the teachings, there is a skillful form of questioning or inquiry. And the difference between inquiry and doubt is that the questions of inquiry tend to lead to more clarity and to more understanding. Whereas the sort of compulsive questioning of doubt tends to be undermining and it can lead to what's sometimes known as paralysis by analysis. And sometimes on retreat it shows up as, well, am I supposed to be doing mindfulness of breathing or should I do metta now? Am I trying to get more concentrated or more relaxed? Would it be better to do walking meditation or maybe some tai chi? And we end up not doing anything at all because we just don't know what's best. There's a very simple remedy for this problem. It doesn't matter what specific form of practice you do. Just do mindfulness of breathing or just metta. That is always time well spent. So the first antidote to doubt is to be able to recognize it for what it is. Oh, it's just doubt. Okay, doubt feels like this. And sometimes just that recognition, it will disappear. But if it's really strong, then... Try to talk to a teacher while you're on retreat here. You can talk to me if you need more specific suggestions for working with it. Okay, so that's our quick tour of these five hindrances. I'm guessing that probably most of them are familiar to most of you to varying degrees of intensity. And even those of you who've been doing retreats for years, even decades, you still at times are practicing with the hindrances. And the good news is that although they might still be coming up, even for very experienced meditators, 
over time and with practice, they come up with less intensity and they don't stick around for nearly as long. And what we find over time is that the balance being the hindr- between the hindrances and the skillful qualities tips and we spend less time having to deal with the hindrances and more time cultivating the skillful qualities. So in the remaining few minutes of the talk, I'd really like to emphasize that in the Satipatthana Sutta, we're instructed to know when a hindrance is present and when it's absent. And this is an aspect of the instructions that often isn't paid much attention to. Right? For many of us, it's quite counterintuitive. Again, because of our inbuilt negativity bias, our biological hardwiring to always be looking out for problems and to give more weight to what's unpleasant than what's pleasant, most of us have an unconscious tendency to notice what's wrong with our practice, to tune into all the problems and the challenges and the issues and not even notice those times when the hindrances might be absent. And there's been phases in my own practice when I've recognized that some part of the mind actually enjoys struggling with these various issues because at least it gives us something to do. We're so habituated to the drama of wrestling with this problem or that challenge or this difficulty that we can feel uneasy, maybe even anxious, when it seems like there's nothing more to do. And I had an example of this early on in my practice where I got caught up in something, I was lying in bed at night, some problem, and I was thinking about it and going over it. And Metaphorically, it was like I was blowing up this great big balloon, and this shouldn't happen, and that shouldn't happen. <laughs> and over the course of the night, this big problem got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then at some point, I just went, it's not a big deal and the whole balloon just burst and all of those hindrances just vanished and there was a moment of incredible relief and release and then the mind went wow, where's my big red balloon? it was like it wanted all of that energy of struggle to come back and sometimes we call this the nostalgia for samsara nostalgia for that entanglement in greed, hatred and delusion because we're not yet familiar with and comfortable with the state of ease. So for some of us, depending on where we are in the development of our Dharma practice, the more refined states such as calmness and kindness and equanimity, they can be an acquired taste and it takes practice to get used to them. But here in the instructions, we're really encouraged to notice when the mind is free of hindrances. Notice that. Let it in. What's that like? How does it feel in the body and the heart-mind? And over time, as we get used to it, our being will naturally want to rest there. So I hope that this brief overview of what happens when the hindrances are released might give you some sense of possibility, some inspiration for where all of this practice is leading. 
So I'd like to close with one more passage from the suttas. It's attributed to the Buddha. And as you listen, you might like to imagine that the Buddha is speaking directly to you. Because in a way, he is. So just settle back and take these words in as best you can. He says, Abandon what is unskillful, practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not say to you, Abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and to pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. And then he continues with the same phrases, this time focusing on the development of what is skillful. And it finishes with, because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and to pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. So may all our efforts here on this retreat help us to develop what is conducive to benefit and pleasure so that we might experience the deepest freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.